Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome to episode 260 of Sexology Podcast. As I shared with you guys last week, we passed 2 million downloads and I wanted to say thank you. Thank you so much for your tremendous support in last five years. I love hearing our relationship stories. I had the pleasure of meeting many of you guys at conferences, at different places, and it's very humbling for me to hear how many of you guys have been following this podcast for several years, and I am grateful to every single one of you. In order to celebrate this major milestone, I'm bringing all kinds of goodies and surprises for you. I'm doing a full episode answering your questions and also doing tons of giveaway on my Instagram account. If you want to get answer to your question, you can either email it to me or even better, you can record your voice on Sexology Podcast website. And in the last episode of this year, which is coming up, I will focus only on answering your questions. Also, starting January, we're doing the giveaway of all sorts of fun sexual health stuff and gift cards. So if you want to participate in that, make sure you're following our Instagram account, which is at Sexology Podcast. Today, we will continue on our conversation on trauma and sexual health. In this conversation, we will focus more on how a survivor can discover their sexual template. We're going to talk about how we can bring back sensuality and sexuality in our lives after experiencing sexual trauma. We're going to talk about sexual trauma reenactment, and we're going to talk about the impact of trauma in our sexual preferences. Our guest today is Dr. Holly Richmond. Holly is a somatic psychologist, certified sex therapist, and licensed marriage and family therapist with offices in New York, New Jersey, Los Angeles, Portland, and Oregon. The unique combination of credentials enable her to focus on clients' cognitive processes as well as mind-body health. She has been coded in all sorts of wonderful media and outlets and she just published her book it's called reclaiming pleasure a sex positive guide for moving past sexual trauma and living passionate life without further ado here's my conversation with dr holly richmond hello and welcome to another episode of sexology podcast i am honored and excited to welcome back dr holly richmond dr richmond welcome to our show Thank you so much for having me back. I'm so happy to be here with you again. I am so excited about this conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your book. You sent your book to me and I loved it. It's such a wonderful resource. And I, I shared it with my clients that are survivors and they loved it. So tell us, how did you decide to write this book? Oh gosh, you may remember this because I believe you were there that day with, with Esther Perel, her sessions 2019 live. So she asked me to speak for her on resurrecting Eros 
which is really reclaiming pleasure where it's so in that in that family. So my dissertation was on the recovery of sexual health after sexual assault, but reclaiming pleasure, the book really is the reclamation of pleasure and healthy sexuality after all kinds of sexual trauma. So I really did feel like including sexual abuse, sexual harassment, gender violence, those kind of things was really important to include in this category as well. Beautiful. And I remember your presentation. It was very moving. And the way you deliver information is so powerful. And I've been using some of the concepts I learned from you in that talk. And I, what I love about the book, besides providing diverse perspective and stories about survivorship, is the fact that you used stories of survivors. I think that can help, that can make it easier for people to connect. How did you decide on that? I, I just, I think people remember stories and not theory. At least I know in, when I've been in classes through my master's and through my doctorate, to any of it, when I go to workshops for all the continuing education we have to do, I remember these client stories. So of course, because of confidentiality, these are not true stories, but Nazanin, it's been so interesting with my clients current and past. I've had people write to me or call and say, is that me? In chapter five, is that me? In chapter eight, is that me? And I say, yes. And it's three other people as well. Because those those themes are so inclusive. They're so apparent in, in so many people, so many individuals. Of course, every story of survivorship is unique, but there's these threads of similarities. And I just tried to weave each story together. I would literally think of three or four clients and then just bring in some kind of more creative pieces on my ends to try to weave these stories together. You know, I, I read a lot of different sex education books, psychology books, and especially when it's related to trauma, I feel there is a certain level of heaviness, especially for people who had a history of trauma when they're reading this book. But mm -hmm. I what I found with your book, it was very informative, but it wasn't necessarily triggering or didn't have that heaviness. It was inviting people to reflect. So I can talk about how great it is forever. <laughs> oh. I was sharing with one of my own clients, actually, this is a wonderful person I was working with for, for a long time. And I've been, we've been trying different intervention to talk about the trauma piece that she experienced. And of course, it's hard to talk about this things. We experienced some reservation and difficulty talking about it. And I shared your book with her and she loved it. She said that it was very powerful for me to read these stories and journal about them. So that was definitely a breakthrough for us. So my invitation for our listeners whether survivors or therapists, is to get your book, share it with the clients that can open up the dialogues and some of the difficult dialogues the clients might not be open to talk about. One of the things that at times I know it came up with my clients when we were talking about this thing, that she was talking about the experience she had, which was different with some survivors. And I know you talk about it in your book, that when people think someone that experienced sexual trauma, they assume that then they, they stop having sex, they develop low desire, they don't want to have sex. But there is a category of people that they, they become more sexual, they experience more desire, and that can be very complicated. I know some people see it from the lens of trauma reenactment. Tell us more about that. Yes, absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought that up because the 
patients that come to me and say, oh my gosh, but I was having more sex. I just kept having more and more sex. And, and also sometimes they'll say, I thought I was empowered, but now when I look back on it, I see it was, you know, it was from this trauma reenactment place or even compulsivity to try to soothe the trauma. So how I talk about that is this, this sexual trauma happened to us, happened in our bodies. And by having more sex, it minimizes, it's an attempt to minimize what happened to us. So if I can do this again, I can prove that my trauma didn't mean as much to me. It didn't mean anything. I wish it worked that way. It doesn't. So, you know, that having more sex than you really want to, having less sex when you really want to, neither of those is a great space to be, but both happen often. So that's what I want our listeners to hear today is it's both normal, but it's finding that balance of the kind of sex that you want to have, the frequency of sex you want to have. So I'm not sure I answered your question, but this trauma reenactment we do what we know until we know better. So for so many, so many survivors, especially those where sexual abuse or assault was their first sexual experience, that is their framework for moving forward. How would we expect them in our culture where we get so little sex education to know how to do better if they're building everything off from these traumatic experiences? So in some ways, I hope that helps people to let themselves off the hook and you'll know if you're doing a trauma reenactment if you aren't present during sex. And I think you and I are going to get into that as we talk more today. I love that. And I love that you highlighted that piece in the book. And we are living in a society that has negative perspective toward being sexual, women's sexuality. So that can be very invalidating. If someone having more sexual experiences, then we hear this narrative of this person is sexual. Maybe then they did something that led to that, which is horrible. Then kind of adds another level of shame and guilt on the person. Yes. Yes. And please, Nazanin, you talk about this so beautifully, but if you are a person who likes to have a lot of sex, that doesn't mean you have experienced trauma. That's just who you are sexually. And if you're present and grounded and you're loving the sex you have and it's consensual and pleasurable, great. So it's just, it's one of the other forms of, of how trauma can be reenacted, but it's not always a trauma response. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for that <laughs> clarification. Yeah. And I think one thing that you mentioned that was very beautiful, there is a different flavor to it, right? Like if you are someone that you're enthusiastic about sex, you like sex, you like the feeling, I think that's a beautiful thing. And with many of the survivors, we, we hear more about this performance piece or numbing piece. So tell us a little bit about the difference between those two. I think a good place to start here is the four trauma responses. So that's fight, flight, freeze, which most people know, but then there's also fawn. So when you talk about the numbing, that's a freeze response. So most often I hear patients say, I was outside of my body. I could literally look down and see myself having sex with this person, but I couldn't feel it. I couldn't be in my body. I couldn't push back in any way. I couldn't say anything. I was just frozen. The other most common response is fawn. So that's freeze, but kind of being nice about it. It's being appeasing and complacent and compliant. So the story that I give in the book is a person was sexually assaulted. He was actually raped. And when the experience was over, his perpetrator asked if he wanted a glass of water. And he said, yes, thank you so much. And he had so much shame by the time he made himself to my, his way to my office about, oh my gosh, why was I nice to my perpetrator? Why did I say thank you? Why didn't I just say you're a gross 
human being and run out of there because that wouldn't have made a lot of sense. That would be confrontational. He could have gotten hurt more. The person could have trapped him in this apartment that he didn't know where he was. So this fawn response, this being nice, is really highly adaptive. And again, it's a very common response for trauma. Love that. And and that story resonated a lot with me because I I hear that piece as well, that I was nice to them. I didn't I didn't shout. I didn't leave immediately. And therefore, maybe there was a part of me that wanted to be there, which is absolutely not that case. And I think you highlighted that in the book beautifully. And I hear from a lot of my clients that they after they kind of they pass the experience and they're working through trauma right before recovery, they have lots of experiences that they, they, as you said, they are not in their body during sex. And many of them, they need to drink a lot to, to have sex. So there is an element of disconnection with their body, which is an opposite of attunement with our partner. So how can we get from the place of disconnection to attunement? This is unique for every individual, but when we're talking about attunement, how I define it, it's really, it's sitting with someone and really seeing them, really hearing them for who they are. Attunement is not about judgment. And when I'm working somatically, it's really about getting nervous systems to attune. And you know this, when you sit with some people, you feel a certain way. And that's because of your nervous system. Like my nervous feels different sitting with you than it would with a stranger on the bus, right? So attunement is also about co-regulating nervous systems. So a way to do that is, is through open communication, through consensual touch. I love the exercise hug to relax. So hug to relax means hugging your partner holding that hug until you feel your nervous systems co-regulate, your breathing regulates, and everybody kind of relaxes into the hug. So a two-minute, to be more clear, it's physiological and emotional. Beautiful. I, I, I think that's very powerful for people to think about that there is a certain energy exchange. And sometimes we need to work, work in all different aspects of ourselves and our partnership to get to that place of attunement. I'm hearing that big part of it is communication, but also physiological connection and that kind of like kind of feeling of attunement being in the, in the room with the person. And if that's a skill that many many of us were not taught what we need when we're learning about sex most people learn it from porn and we say okay this is the script like two two seconds of foreplay or like five seconds of foreplay penetration and everyone is happy within five minutes and it's like mind-blowing and Mm -hmm. opposite of what what we want with the attunement piece so i know that you talk about exercises a couple can do you talked about the, the the hugging piece what else do you recommend people to do maybe even with them when they want to arrive to that place of physiological attunement and kind of calming down their nervous system. Yes. And I'm so glad you asked that because I realized I missed this in your last question. There's also attunement to ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. So many of us and especially survivors are not taught to tune in to what we want and how we're feeling. So the first piece of attunement is learning to sit with our feelings. So recognizing our feelings, not having to run from them with your example, not having to drink them away to numbness sitting with our feelings, knowing that it's a feeling that it will pass through and, and then developing regulating strategies on top of that. For some people, it's movement. For some people, it's singing. For some people, it's hugging a pet. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of strategies that we can use. But this, so attuning to ourselves, one of the first things I do is to help my patients develop a self-pleasure protocol. 
So this is different than masturbation because when we talk about masturbation, it's usually with a goal of getting off. That's not where I'm starting with, with my, the survivors that I'm working with. It's just go to your bed for 20 minutes to an hour or go to a place that feels comfortable and safe and erotic or sexy, any of those qualities that, that you value. And just first start with your arms or your head, non-genital areas, so you can attune to your own touch and really learn what feels best and, and what you don't prefer. Do you like heavier touch, like massage type touch, or do you prefer light taps and tickles? And eventually, after several weeks of this practice, you can build up to genital touch and perhaps build up to orgasm if that's something that you're interested in achieving. I think it's wonderful that you're inviting people to leaning to pleasure because sometimes when we have those traumatic experiences, we feel like we're feeling conflicted about pleasure. We feel that like, you know, pleasure is bad, especially sexual pleasure. And many of my clients, and I, and I can imagine that that you had similar experiences, that they experience trauma, especially sexual trauma. They have complicated relationship with their self-image. They're disconnected with their body. And now then when we are exploring, doing the touching and pleasuring piece that you mentioned, then that piece gets triggered and we just don't like our body. And then our brain gets dis like a distracted. How can we work through that? Oh my gosh, this, this is the layered nuance piece. And I've heard people say they appreciate the book, really gives them a step-by-step -step approach. And um, I'll talk about this at the end, but I'm happy to offer soon an online course and group coaching because when we get to this body image piece, I just didn't have the word count or the page count in the book, but I rarely meet a survivor of sexual trauma that doesn't have some body image issue, disordered eating or uh, problems around exercise. So we can go off for several weeks and really do that foundational work of how are you can trying to control your body? Where are you shaming your body? Really coming to terms with that, processing it, talking through it, and then we go back to the pleasure piece. So I love that you brought that up and I wish I could say, yes, do ABC and you'll be good, but it's it's just so complicated. Yeah, but it's processing. Mm -hmm. Things that are not necessarily psychoeducational, we can talk about right. it, things that people need to do and kind of like experience on their own and that can be very healing. And I definitely want survivors to know about your course. So we'll definitely talk about yes. that. But I also, something that I love that you mentioned, I feel at times I, I get attacked for it, that you talked about scheduling connection with your partner, scheduling time for it. Tell us why that would be useful. Because it doesn't happen otherwise. <laughs> I'm curious to see what you find in your practice. But if I I mean, when I first started out, I would say, I want you to do this homework twice a week and it does need to be scheduled. And they would push back and say, but then it's not spontaneous. It's not going to be sexy. This ruins the whole thing. I'm like, okay, I'm going to trust you, but please try between the next, this time and next time I see you. And guess what? It wouldn't happen. So I have started being a little bit more, not controlling, but really wanting, saying with my clients, is it going to be Tuesday and Thursday? Is it going to be Wednesday and Saturday? Like, what is your plan? Like, literally, please, can we make a plan here? Because otherwise it's not going to happen. But getting something on the books, let's say for six weeks, six to eight weeks, then it becomes a more natural, organic practice. We can't go from having no sex or having bad sex 
to having great sex without having some intentionality around the process. I love that. And I agree with you. I get surprised when people say like scheduling sex is not sexy. I always say not having sex is not <laughs> sexy. <laughs> well, and that's very interesting that like there's just so many reactions that people feel like, okay, then that's going to be forced. But it's more of kind of creating this intentional time to be with your partner and have the be in the right space of mind. Like a, because sometimes they're just so distracted that it's just hard to transition from our kind of like different roles that we're having and different hats we're wearing to to our sexual self and sensual self. So I thought it was fantastic that you talked about it in the book. And also something very exciting that you talked about it in the book was different sexual templates and mm-hmm. how we can discover and even celebrate our own template after, during the recovery and after the recovery. So tell us more about that. I just, I meet so many people, survivors for sure, but people in general who have never really taken time to think about what they like, what turns them on. So for me, the sexual template is a two-pronged process. There is desire, which is the psychological process of wanting, and arousal, the physiological process of wanting. And in the book, I do this through the five senses. If I'm working with a client in person, we might just kind of throw ideas back and forth. But I think working from the five senses gives gives you a good foundation to really ask, okay, when I'm having fantasies, when I'm in that place of psychological wanting, what is it that I'm thinking about? And I don't want to miss the opportunity here to say, I can't tell you how many women in particular say, I don't fantasize never had a fantasy, don't know what you're talking about. And I'll say, okay, tell me about the daydreams. When you're just out for a walk, what are your daydreams? It's of my husband telling me I look beautiful. It's of winning this award at work. So then we pull from there and then bring it into sexuality. So are you looking for recognition? Are you looking for empowerment? Are you looking for validation? What is it that you're craving in your outside life? Because I promise we can whittle that down and find the erotic thread. I think that's such a good way of going about that because uh, going back, I'm not against porn, but going back to the porn story that that visualization, that script is not resonating with many, many women. And that's why they think, okay, I don't fantasize that. And therefore I'm not sexual, but I love that you are kind of like helping them to incorporate part of their day-to-day dreaming and yearnings as part of their fantasy. So you're, you're helping people to identify like five senses as part of that. And now they're mm-hmm. kind of elaborating their own erotic self, kind of like incorporating in their imagination. And what would be the next phase after that? Then it's putting it into practice. So actually we would do the sexual template and then the self-pleasure protocol. And then from the self-pleasure protocol, opening that up to a partner. That's typically the how I organize this. Yes. And I, and I feel like with the five senses, also it's not threatening because for a lot of survivors going straight to sex, it's just going to be too much too soon like their trauma was. So starting with things that, again, aren't generally based, aren't necessarily sexual, you and I use this word erotic a lot. That can be sexual, but it doesn't have to be. It's more about life force, vitality, vivacity, you know, things that just make you feel alive. Absolutely. And I love that there is this kind of a plan of, okay, you are 
taking this fantasy to a test run and see how you feel about it and you how you are you have the agency of sharing parts of it with your partner and then like it's it's more of something that you're in control because I know many of the survivors that they have that feeling of I, I don't I don't want to be not in control at times and surrendering can be obviously for obvious reasons very very challenging and I love that in, in the preference you talk about people have like all sorts of different sexual encounters. Some people like mm-hmm. sensual connection, some people like power exchange, all sorts of things. And it's not necessarily say anything about the person they are or whether their preference is necessarily formed by their trauma. Tell us more about that. Yes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. So tr- sexual trauma doesn't inform our sexuality. It misinforms it. It doesn't orientate what we like. It disorientates what we like. So back to where you and I started with the trauma reenactment, we may go through those steps because it's just what we know. It's the only tools we have, but it doesn't feel good in our body. And we dissociate, we numb, we have to drink, whatever whatever it is that we have to do. So to really doing the sexual template, self-pleasure protocol, putting those steps in place, we're really being so intentional and thoughtful about what feels good to me. What is it about sex that turns me on? Even if the choice is asexuality, that's still a choice. It's not not choosing. So it's just we don't give ourselves enough time because of the culture we're born into and then put trauma on top of that. We are just not giving the opportunity to think about what it is that we like and, and turns us on. Well, I, I love what you all, everything you said. <laughs> and, I, and I know many of our listeners had some experiences of trauma, unfortunately, and it's just so common, all sorts of experience of sexual trauma and rape and all of that that you talk about in the book. And I'm very excited about this program that you are introducing. Tell us more about that. So it's called Reclaiming Pleasure, the course. You can go to my website and find that or reclaimingyourpleasure.com. But it's going to, it loosely follows the book. It's not an exact interpretation because people can get the book. I wanted to give them something new and fresh. But it's a 14-module course, and it has grounding exercises in it. It has case studies. It really talks through understanding your trauma, shame, suffering, pain, sexual templates, fantasies, eroticism, so many things that you and I have talked about here today, but it's just a little bit more personal. I deliver it just kind of in a, in a setting, you know, similar to Zoom. So that will be coming in January. And then probably in February, I'll be offering group coaching just because we know the research tells us that group, group coaching or group therapy sessions for survivors are so powerful. Again, because people get to share their true, their true selves and their stories. Well, I remember that you showed the video on finding Eros workshop that you were mm-hmm. facilitating and you were t- you were doing a group like a, it was a video of you doing group and it was very powerful. So I invite our listeners if that's something that resonates with them to check out your material and I have no doubt they're going to get tremendous value from it. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Holly. This was definitely a treat and thank you for all the wonderful work that you're doing. Thank you so much. You have been a wonderful, wholehearted, beautiful supporter from the moment we've met. I so admire your work as well. So thank you again for having me on and letting me share. My pleasure. Thank you. I hope you guys found our conversation meaningful. The main message that I would like you to consider if you experience trauma is that everyone's journey is unique. 
but recovery is 100% possible. You just need someone that can help you to guide through it. I know with many of the survivors that I work with, they feel broken, they feel rotten, and they feel disconnected. And these are all symptoms of trauma. So if you are struggling, the very good step would be reaching out to get connected with a therapist that can help you restart your journey. Because many people, after experiencing trauma, what they do is at times they process the traumatic memory, but they don't do the extra work of connecting with pleasure and reconnecting with sensuality and sexual connection with others. So this is your invitation to explore that. And also, there are so many of my own clients that they feel sexually disconnected. They don't know what's wrong, but they know that they haven't reached their sexual potential. I designed a quiz for this particular people category of women that they want to improve their sexual life and they want to problem solve what's happening. And if that's something that's interesting to you, you can take my free quiz the link is in the bio and after taking the quiz, you will get some suggestions on what kind of a resources you can access to help you to achieve and get closer to the sex life that you want. All right. I cannot wait to get your questions and I hope you will have a lovely holiday season. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.